At a time when there is greater emphasis on community standards, how has the role of a solicitor changed and how does this relate to risk in everyday practice? In this program, Alyssa Baxter, General Counsel at Law Cover, and Malcolm Cameron, partner at Spark Helmore, discuss the changing role of solicitors as legal and ethical advisors and examine whether solicitors can stick to advising on the strict application of the law or whether they have a role in guiding a client's moral compass. In short, to what extent is a solicitor expected to advise on what's right and wrong? Hi, Malcolm. Thanks for joining us. We're here to talk about ethics today, and I just wanted to start by talking about the recent Royal Commission into Financial Services. In the final report, there were a lot of references to financial institutions failing to give much thought to what was ethical or what was fair and honest and what type of behaviour would meet community expectations. And I just wanted to chat with you about what role do laws play and therefore do lawyers play in defining what is ethical, fair and honest when it comes to big public institutions like banks? Well, that's a very good question, Alyssa. I think that uh, you can approach it in two different ways. I think probably the traditional traditional way that lawyers think about uh, any issue is through the framework of what the rules are that, that govern that issue and... And some of the things that came out from the Financial Services Royal Commission uh, may well have involved uh, uh, conduct by institutions which was compliant, which sort of ticked the legal boxes, but which uh, when looked at in the sort of cold light of day by the community looks a bit uh, unattractive or dodgy or difficult. One of the difficulties with that narrow approach is that these businesses actually are businesses that rely on... uh, consumer, the public, they rely on shareholders, they rely on people out there in the real world, um, not just on dealing with regulators and getting the legal compliance right. So uh, often it's in companies' own sort of self-interest to actually think about not just whether they can do something, but whether they should do something. And exactly the role that lawyers play in that is, is, is I think, quite complicated. So isn't it the role of the legislation, of, though, to decide what is right and wrong and then lawyers just have to apply that and say, well, if you're in compliance with the law, you're doing the right thing and if you're not in compliance with the law, you're doing the wrong thing um, and, and not have to bring to it, if you like, a moral judgment? Sure. Well, I mean, I would say that that's, uh, that's a valid approach, but it's not necessarily a smart approach for, for every uh, business out there. So uh, if companies are prepared to sort of wear the public negative publicity and the, and the, the criticism that gets levelled at them for conduct, which, which may be sort of strictly compliant but looks a bit sort of doubtful, then that's fine. They can do that. And, and, and in a way, the way I see the, the role of the lawyer is to Absolutely, make sure that that your client, if your client is an institution like that, uh, knows what the rules are, knows what it can do, what it can't do. But if you see something which uh, you look at it and you think, well, you know what, that's actually uh, a bit hard to justify, I think the lawyer can go a bit further and 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 tell the client that that's something that that, that would cause them some concern. Cause the lawyer personally, like, do we have to bring to it just our legal knowledge, or do we also bring to it? I just need to tell you, I think this is actually not going to play very well. Or actually, I think you're doing the wrong thing. You, you're strictly legally compliant, but you're, you're not doing the right thing in this circumstance. 
Well, I think it depends on your relationship with the client. If it's a client that brings you in to give you give a specific piece of advice on a specific thing that you don't have any real knowledge of their business other than what you're asked to specifically look at, it's very hard for you to jump from that quite sort of narrow technical job to telling them that they're behaving immorally. Mm. And, and frankly, if you did, they'd probably, um, <laughs> they'd probably <laughs> look, at you, you look at you sort of slightly strangely and, and show you where the door was. Uh, but if it's a client that you know well and you understand their business and you can actually see uh, not really from a moral point of view but from an from a enlightened self-interest point of view that the business may be doing something that, that is not going to be good for it, Look, you know, ultimately the lawyer can't be the moral guardian. I don't think it's the lawyer's job to say, you know, to, as it were, wag their finger and say you're doing the wrong thing and you shouldn't do the wrong thing because I think actually you don't, you, you wouldn't really have any credibility with your clients if you if you spoke to them like that. Um, but, I mean, clients uh, absolutely uh, appreciate lawyers steering them away from a potential cliff. So... I mean, one of the, the ways I like to look at things is I think what, what would this look like if it was made public? Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's not the legal test for anything necessarily. No. But for businesses that are public-facing, that have, you know, a, a wide customer base, that they may have a brand that's known publicly, uh, they may be listed on the stock market, so they may, they may have a sort of a public face through that uh, means as well. For companies like that, uh, you know, does something – pass that test. If, if this was public, what would the impact be? Um, and, and if the company can say, look, hand on heart, I think what we're doing is fine, it's defensible, it's legal, it's, it's legal for starters, but it's also uh, defensible and capable of being explained, then fine. You, you, you as the lawyer don't, you know, it's not your role to say you can't do that. But I think it is part of your role to say, if you go down this path, even though I think strictly speaking, it falls within the boundaries of what you can do, there may be consequences uh, that are adverse for you. So it's really appealing. Uh, is it morality? I'm not quite sure, but it's sort of appealing to somebody's self-interest in a, in a slightly uh, indirect way. Sure. And so, but I can see though that having a part of your enlightened self-interest, as you call it, um, from a company's point of view is to act ethically or in a way that the general community would see as ethical. So, um, in the Financial Services Royal Commission, a lot of the banks were seen as acting unethically in some situations and when that became public, it, it played very badly for the banks. Um, I do think there's a role for solicitors to, say, point out the ethical deficiencies in what their clients are doing if, as you say, they are that trusted advisor. They're not just someone brought in to, to strictly um, give advice on the the strict rules, but also to talk generally about the business or how the business should operate. I think that's right. And sometimes, uh, depending on your relationship with a client, you, you'll sometimes have uh, an independent perspective on the client and what it's asking you to give advice about that is something which uh, may not be immediately apparent to the people within the client. So often large organisations will have different business units and so a particular person in a particular business unit may come up with a genius idea to make more money. Um, they may be looking for legal sign-off on that. The sort of ultimate consequences of that, whether it be ethically or whether it be in terms of reputation for the business, may be something that individual doesn't think through or may not um, have, have in their mind. They may have a whole picture if there is a small piece of the business. And, and so as a legal advisor, if you can see... Uh, 
those adverse consequences out there, then absolutely I think you raise them just as you would with any uh, potential sort of not strictly legal adverse consequence of a client making a decision. And, and and so it's not restricted to financial services. It's not really. I don't necessarily see it as a moral question. I, I don't. I don't sort of see myself as a moral guardian for my clients. Not by any means. But but if something seems wrong, uh, then usually it's a bad idea. Situations where companies often come unstuck are situations not where they're making a decision to do a certain thing, but where they're making a decision to disclose a certain thing. So um, where there has been um, the discovery of some maybe dishonest conduct or misconduct of some kind, and you're making a decision, do I tell the regulator about this? Do I alert ASIC to this? Do I put it on the stock exchange? Do, are these um, those kinds of decisions? What role does a lawyer play in in the ethics of disclosing that kind of decision? So there are there are technical aspects to giving advice about all of those things. So, you know, if it's a financial services breach, is it a significant breach? Does it have to be disclosed to the regulator? Uh, in, in relation to uh, price-sensitive information, there are various criteria that if they're met, there's an obligation to disclose. And so the first, the first job of the solicitor retained in those sorts of situations is to uh, – look at the situation through a technical lens. Are the various boxes in the legislation ticked? If so, then there's no choice. The client has to disclose. But actually I think, and, and that doesn't strictly involve any moral or ethical type judgments, but I think it's slightly uh, misleading to think that it's as simple as that. Mm. Because when you think about the, the language that gets used, it's things like, is this breach significant? Well... That's a judgment. Yeah, there's absolutely a judgment about the significance. And significant can mean lots of different things. There are, significant to whom? Exactly. And there are objective aspects of that. There are, you know, are lots of lots of customers affected, for mm-hmm. example. That would make something more likely to be significant compared to if only one customer was affected. Uh, is it a breach which has uh, been repeated by multiple people within the organisation or is it an isolated thing? So there are sort of objective criteria that you can look at to gauge significance. But there is obviously sort of a moral overlay to all of that because the way these things get judged inevitably is in hindsight. So a company can make a decision not to disclose something. Um, if nothing ever comes of it, if if no one's ever really heard, if they clean up the mess that that, that thing uh, represented, fine, and that's the end of that. But if that thing that they decided not to disclose today turns out a year from now to be a major disaster. That's a cover-up. Then it's a cover-up. And so it's actually the same thing. It's just it's just looked at very differently. So, so there's an ethical idea behind uh, uh, the word cover-up because it sounds as though it's um, a decision that was made a year ago was to hide something, whereas in fact what might have happened was we didn't think it was going to be significant and we didn't think we needed to disclose it. Um but in hindsight, that does look like you've actually made a decision to make sure no one ever finds out about this terrible thing that's turned out to be terrible. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, of course, that sometimes does happen. It, it, that there are cover-ups. <laughs> that there are cover-ups. Yeah. It's, that, that does happen. And although rarely I suspect on advice from lawyers, but I'm sure it, even that has happened, I, I think that the, the, 
the moral overlay is is really all about though the looking back. Mm. So looking at a decision not to disclose a particular fact, if there's only really one way to explain that when looked at later, and that might be something like that fact was really unpleasant and uncomfortable, we hoped it would all go away and we didn't want anyone to know. That's a really bad explanation and, you know, that would be judged very harshly with the benefit of hindsight. And actually, absolutely, the the people making that decision will be seen to have been in some way uh, doing the wrong thing. Uh, And I say that in, in the sort of moral sense rather than in a strict legal sense. But to me, the lawyer being asked to look at that fact, whatever it may be, and is asked by the client, what should we do? Should we say something or should we not say something? You can't, I don't think, give advice about that without thinking about how it would look if the fact is undisclosed and is later later turns out to be a, a small piece of a big problem. You have to look at that. It does have a, a sort of a, a perception or an ethical overlay and you would, I think, be inclined to say to your client, okay, firstly, have you investigated this? Is it a bigger problem than you know about? Um, is is there anything, are there any questions you're not asking because you don't want to know the answer? And how would you feel if uh, this did turn into a bigger problem and, and you later got asked these same questions but not by me, your friendly lawyer, but by ASIC or by or by somebody in a, in a witness box in a Royal Commission? Um, so I think though those, are, those, those things are actually because it's in the client's interest to think about uh, should I in fact say something about this? It's not necessarily because the client wants to be a better person. Although a comment you made earlier is right, which is that a lot of financial services companies are quite proud and and many of them quite rightly proud of their public reputations. For them, brand is important. Uh, It matters for them not only to uh, do the right thing but to be seen to be doing the right thing. They want people to have warm and fuzzy feelings about them so that they'll buy their products and... and, uh, engage with them so that there's a value in those sort of branding or reputational issues which goes above and beyond strict compliance and and really in a way what you might be doing as a lawyer is reminding the particular person you're talking to that those are things that are sometimes judged harshly in hindsight. I think in some of those circumstances when companies are making those decisions they will seek a legal opinion so that they've got some comfort that well, we had legal advice about that and the legal advice was we weren't required to disclose. And so because we weren't required to disclose, the decision not to disclose was a reasonable one Um, and that's maybe a justification for doing something that later might be seen as unethical because you had legal advice that let you cover something up um, whereas uh, perhaps that strict legal advice might have included a bit more of you should think about whether this is going to be seen as a cover-up later. Yes, and I really wouldn't want to be that solicitor. So, <laughs> <laughs> who's being relied on to to say to, to to give comfort to what the client really wants to do is say nothing. Well, it's true that a, a branch of work done by our profession is to provide comfort or sign off or mm. uh, assurance ahead of time about. Uh, conduct that a client has yet to engage in, yep. that they want to understand whether they can or can't do it. And and that's an important sort of piece of work for our profession and it's something which I think uh, lawyers can't be afraid to do. That is, if if you look at a, 
situation, you form a view that the client's entitled to do X or Y, then absolutely the right thing to do is to give that advice. I suppose uh, it comes back to what I said a bit earlier in this discussion, which is that it depends a bit on how much you know about the client. If you're brought in to advise on a narrow point and that's all you know is what you've been told, you probably can't do much more than give that advice. If you have a broader perspective on, on the client and its objectives, you probably know enough to uh, give them advice that is, well, it's argu- arguable that you can do X, but you might want to think about uh what consequences that may have in these other ways. Um, So when we were talking earlier, um, I talked a little bit about how the law kind of defines what's right and what's wrong. And I think in some cases, like in the criminal law, that can be defined in a moral way. It It is wrong to kill someone. It is wrong to steal things. But there are some parts of the law that might not have that moral element to it. Um, And I'm thinking like of the Tax Act, where there are a number of people who don't necessarily think paying tax is the right thing to do, and it's not necessarily wrong not to pay tax. Um, But I think this is where lawyers can get into a, a difficult situation where you can give advice and say, this is a way you can structure your business to minimise the amount of tax that you have to pay. And the community would see it differently. The community would say a big company like Apple or Google or whatever, ought to be paying tax in this jurisdiction where they t- make their profits. But strictly speaking, legally, they don't have to do that. So where does this, the, the rule, the, the ethical um, restrictions for lawyers, how do they sit in that context? All the big issues, that's, that's a hard question, but uh, it's interesting. I think you're right. I think lots of areas of the law have a, a sort of moral overlay where the law is trying to give effect to some fairly obvious community standard. And so criminal law is a good example. Uh, financial services law is another good example where, you know, the laws are really designed to uh, prevent people being ripped off. Yeah, like the consumer law. Is yeah, there the consumer law. And so those, people being ripped off. And, and so those things, and even the law of tort, I mean, those things are really the legal system trying to align itself, if you like, with a sort of perceived community standard, interestingly, to come back to a point you made at the beginning. And and actually the discussion we've been having earlier has been about where there's things that seem to depart from community standards, if you like, but are strictly within the law, what do you do? And my, my answer to that really is just tap the client on the shoulder, give them a warning. Tax, I think, is a bit different. I think that uh, everybody in the community pays tax. Uh, nobody you know, particularly enjoys having to pay tax. But most people share the view that it's a thing that is required to have a society of a kind that we're happy to live in. And, you know, different people have different views about how much tax should be collected by, by governments. But, but it is an entirely uh, artificial construct. That is, there is uh, no – I mean, the example you gave earlier is people know it's not right to kill others. So – that's true, and so the law just pretty much says don't kill people. Don't kill people. <laughs> so that's pretty straightforward. Um, but tax, what is tax? I mean, tax is a is a, con, a, a series of words that are constructed by legislatures to try to capture uh, real life situations, financial transactions, a, a huge amount of complexity uh, in the economy. To pay to, money to the government. To, to pay money to the government. And and so you, you, those, so what you're left with is this artificially constructed set of rules which are that's all you've got. You just, those are the rules. So there's no sort of 
sense that it's uh, the right thing to do to pay a certain amount of tax. Mm -hmm. You you might have a view that it's the right thing to do to pay your taxes. Mm -hmm. But really what that means is you think it's the right thing to comply with tax law. That, that, and that's a lot of people see that as the only um, moral question around tax law is make sure you don't break the tax law. Whereas I think there's a move in the current political climate to something different, to say you've got to, companies have an obligation to make a contribution to the society in which they're making their profits. And I do think that's a slightly different community standard from yeah. every, companies should comply with the tax law, which they probably are doing, but, but they still don't pay any tax. That's right. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you. It, it, the, the difficulty is that translating that sense of what should happen to what actually happens, I think, actually has to be done via law reform. In mm. other words, I don't think any amount of saying that a particular multinational should pay more tax in this country or in some other country gets you very far because that multinational will say, well, that's all very interesting. <laughs> but, but we're just but playing within the we're rules. We're playing within the rules and, and and we not only are playing within the rules, we're making damn sure we understand what the rules are and we're making damn sure we structure our affairs so that the rules apply to us in in a way that results in as little money being paid as possible. I mean, I should say the tax law, and I'm not, no tax lawyer, but I know the tax law does have uh, anti-avoidance provisions, which in a way are almost intended to be or could be seen as the embodiment of that community standard. Mm. So you you can construct an incredibly elaborate scheme that ticks 78 different boxes in the tax legislation and means you don't pay any money. Well, I mean, I say that. Whether you actually can do that or not, I have no idea. But let's assume you can. But if that's seen as uh, a scheme that's been created to avoid tax, then it can be taxed. All of those subtleties can be ignored and the tax office can... Uh, impose a tax on you, which I think is, I'm, I'm sure that's controversial in in the, the tax law community, but that seems to me to be, if you like, one tool that legislatures have seized on to deal with the point you're raising, which is how do you uh, write the rules in such a way that you not only get strict compliance, but you get you know people paying their fair share? Well, if the answer is you write flexibility into the rules so that uh, and empower some uh, entity in the form of the ATO to, to chase people down, well, maybe that's a way of dealing with it. So we've talked about um, lawyers being involved in decisions about what to disclose or how to advise your client to stick within community standards. But what about situations where it's the lawyer themselves that are that is doing the disclosing or doing the talking? So um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Paul Manafort case in the US um, where Paul Manafort's lawyer came out when a verdict was handed down in his case and declared there'd been no finding of collusion by the court, which was misleading maybe, but was was a question as to whether it was unethical. The, the word that came to mind was false, but, but misleading <laughs> will do. So can you start off by talking to us a little bit about what who is Paul Manafort and what was that case about? And then we'll talk about what Paul Manafort's lawyer said. Okay, so um, how long have we got? Is, <laughs> I, won't, I won't go too much into uh, American political matters, but Paul Manafort was for a period of time in 2016 the manager of the Donald Trump campaign for the United States presidency, which I'm told he won. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that that's right, but I've been told that. So let's assume that's right. So Manafort uh, was charged and convicted on 10 counts of various offences, including obstruction of justice and 
other things earlier this year in two separate trials in, in the US. He'd had a lot of dealings with uh, people associated with the Russian Federation, uh, if I can put that neutrally. Uh, but, of course, the question of collusion with Russia was a major political issue in America at the time and probably still is. So the trials that Manafort went through and the uh, sentencing process he went through all happened at sort of the peak uh, Russia collusion investigation period in, in America earlier this year. But before the Mueller report That's right, before released. the Mueller report was mm-hmm. released and so that, that then cast a new light on a lot of these things. So it was well known to the lawyers in the case that the question of collusion with Russia was a big political issue. Um, what was interesting is that in the actual case itself, there was no allegation against Manafort of collusion or conspiracy with Russia. Uh, or with anybody associated with Russia. There were a series of charges that uh, dealt with um, various activities which which he was convicted on, which I won't um, try to summarise here, as interesting as that may be. And he was, he was sentenced to prison for that. But after the second sentencing, he had two trials, two convictions and two sentences. After the second sentencing hearing, his lawyer came out of the courtroom and, of course, there was a media pack. And the lawyer uh, said to the assembled media pack, and I have the article in front of me in case I I make a mess of this, Judge Jackson conceded, conceded that there was absolutely no evidence of any Russian collusion in this case. So... Well, that might have been strictly true because there was no evidence of Russian collusion in that case. There, there wasn't, and, and just as there was no evidence of any clown invasions of the White House in that case, <laughs> right. and, and for a very simple reason, which is the question That's of collusion didn't come up in the case any more than the question of, cl- of clown invasions of the White House came up in the case. So, so it, was, it was true, perhaps, so you said misleading, I said false. Perhaps you're right. Perhaps misleading is the better word. Uh, and is that a breach of ethics, though, to say something that you know has a huge political impact that's strictly speaking true but is technic- but is genuinely misleading? To say there's no evidence of collusion implies that that evidence of collusion was expected and wasn't forthcoming, whereas in fact there was no evidence of collusion because none was called because it wasn't about collusion. Well, well, I don't know what the ethical rules in uh, Washington, D.C., are, but I'm quite confident that the things that were said in that context are things that would not be said by many uh, lawyers in practice here. I'm not a criminal lawyer, so it wouldn't I wouldn't have the chance to say anything like that, but I certainly wouldn't say anything like that about a case I'd just been involved in, and I suspect most people here wouldn't. It, it's really quite uh, interesting. I mean, there's a difference. Partly there's a cultural difference. I mean, certainly in, in this country... Lawyers are not commonly the mouthpieces for clients immediately after trials. They sometimes are. If they are, they tend to say really boring things, uh, like we're considering whether we want to appeal, things that are pretty neutral and don't go anywhere. It is very odd and quite jarring, I think, for Australian lawyers to hear a lawyer characterising for apparently ulterior purposes something said by a judge. When I say ulterior purposes, I really mean publicity-type purposes mm-hmm. rather than anything more sinister. It's just a very odd thing to hear and, and something which I think is a, a direction I certainly would want to see our profession go in, but we'll see. 
Sure. And there are solicitors' rules against dishonesty. Hmm. Is that, would this be in breach of those dishonesty rules? the, The rule to be honest in your dealings, does that extend to what you say to the media? Uh, I'm actually not sure I know the technical answer to that question, Lisa. I think certainly you, you've got that obligation in dealing with the court. You've got that obligation dealing with clients, dealing with opponents. Uh, I, th- I think it would be very strange uh, for it to not apply mm. in terms of making public statements about cases. And I think it would be bad for the profession if lawyers were able to not tell the truth or, sure. or to be misleading in the kinds of things that you're saying. I, I mean, I think it would be inconsistent with the obligation to the court anyway. I mean, to, to characterise something which a judge has said and to do that in a way which is uh, not accurate uh, and incomplete and, and to do it for a particular purpose, mm. I think is very hard to, to, to align with the obligation to the court. So... There is uh, a little bit more media scrutiny of some trials than other trials and I think recently in Australia we've had some trials that have got extensive media coverage and I'm thinking of one case in particular where uh, a barrister in this case said something in front of the court that that breached community standards but I think was technically correct Um, and that was in... um, the trial of Cardinal Pell, um, where Robert Richter QC uh, was representing Cardinal Pell in the sexual assault case regarding two 13-year-old choir boys. And after the conviction, um, there was a sentencing hearing which was widely covered by the media and I think there were media in the courtroom and I think it was recorded. I'm not certain. I think it was being telecast outside the courtroom. Um And there were a number of victims of childhood sexual abuse in the courtroom and outside the courtroom. And during the sentencing hearing, um, Richter described the crime that Pell had been convicted of as being no more than a plain vanilla sexual penetration case. Do you think that lawyers need to tailor the things that they say to, again, meet community standards? Well, I think think Mr Richter has since apologised for that formulation. So I should say that. I mean, I, I think I shared uh, most people's horror with with th- that choice of phrase. I have some sympathy for the barrister in the sense that I think what he was trying to do was to do something which happens, I think, in a lot of criminal cases in sentencing, which is to compare the particular offence that the client's been convicted of with uh, other offences in the same category to, to, to try to place it on a spectrum of Put it on a scale. From the most serious to the least serious and to, sure. to, make a, to, to make a point on his client's behalf to seek a lesser sentence. So I, I, I suspect that's what he was uh, uh, aiming for, whether that was a good way to put it or not. I've got I, my doubts. I think we all agree it was a, not a very good way to do it. But, but I think in the context of if this was a closed court where, where he was just speaking with lawyers, only speaking to the judge, uh, there wasn't a lot of media attention it might not have been such a terrible thing to say, but knowing the audience of who would hear this, the wider implications of this trial, this particular person and the role he'd played in the Catholic Church, I wonder if those things made it a different audience and that he should have chosen his words more carefully. Well, well I think that the, 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 to me the, the, the framework to view all of that in is his own client's interests actually. So... Ultimately, the role of an advocate is to advocate and to do that in a way that is effective 
so that involves choosing words and phrases and, and how those propositions are put to a court. There isn't, uh, I think, thankfully, a, a court of public opinion and, I, and I, there have been various media commentators since that conviction who've set themselves up as uh, judge and jury and have explained why they take the view that the wrong result was received, was was um, obtained, which has its own difficulties. Mm-hmm. So uh, the way I see it is that for, for, for a, a barrister or for a lawyer in that situation, the, the key thing is trying to find something which is effective. I think that if you say something which is going to shock and outrage people and you say that on behalf of someone who, after all, has just been convicted, the, the, the problem with it is that it, it reflects badly on your client, mm. the person who's just been convicted. Yes, it which, suggests is, which that, is counterproductive. That's right. It client. suggests that your client's uh, per- perception of his own guilt is that this is nothing more than plain vanilla which is not something I would have thought uh, a convicted person in, in, this, in this prisoner's situation would have wanted to mm. be the, the, the message being put to the court. So that's a slightly weasel-worded worded answer to your, <laughs> to your question. But uh, I think it kind of comes back to the stuff that you've been saying elsewhere, which is when lawyers are looking at these ethical issues – Ultimately, you're looking at the wider interest of your client. You're looking at how the client's going to be perceived publicly if they're a a financial institution, how they're going to be perceived publicly or even by the court if they're convicted of an offence. And it's a lawyer's job not just to put what is strictly legally the case but also to look wider than that Mm. because all of those things are going to impact ultimately on the client's best interests. I think that's right, and it's it's difficult to you can't be prescriptive about these things. But I just think you can't be blinkered as a lawyer. You ca- you can't pretend that the world does not exist outside the sort of immediate thirty degree field of vision that you have. That clients exist in a in a real world. They exist in an economy. In the case of financial institutions, they exist in a criminal justice system and in a broader community. In the case of uh, convicted uh, defendants, such as the one we've just been talking about. So, so the world out there exists, for good or for ill. Uh, lawyers are part of it and their clients are too. And so you, I just think you need to be conscious of that. There are lots of things that we don't know as lawyers, of course, and there are lots of reasons why uh, we, we may offer a view about whether you know not disclosing a particular fact is a good idea or a bad idea. But, of course, clients are free to ignore us as well. Sure. So there's no, to my mind there's no real downside. If you think there's a problem, say something. If the client thinks you're getting out of your box and you should get back into it, they can tell you that. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, thanks very much for joining us on this podcast today. Um, I think it's really good to consider the legal issues as well as the kind of wider ethical issues that lawyers are facing. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Alyssa. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.